0: Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we dedicate the hour to Julian Assange. We're joined by very special guests, Gabriel Shipton and John Shipton, brother and father of Julian Assange. Gabriel is the producer of a new film, Ithaca, a father, a family, a fight for justice. It's a heartrending personal story of Assange's family's battle to free him. Later in the program, we're joined by author and journalist Kevin Gastola. We'll get updates on the Assange case and talk about his forthcoming book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Stay with us for an hour on the importance of the free press and the case of Julian Assange. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we're going to be focusing on the case of Julian Assange. We're going to be featuring the author of a new book coming out, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. We'll have Kevin Gastola back on the program later. But first, I have the great honor of having on the program today Gabriel Shipton and John Shipton, the brother and father of Julian Assange, and they are the force behind and protagonist of a new documentary film, Bullfrog Films. It's called Ithaca, and that's I-T-H-A-K-A, a father, a family, a fight for justice. In this first segment, we're going to have a conversation with Gabriel and John about the film and about their quest to seek justice for and freedom for Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. The film is directed by Ben Lawrence. Uh, It has gotten some critical acclaim already. And Ithaca is a filming of the campaign to free Julian Assange. And it takes on intimate dimensions in this portrait of a father's fight to save his son. Ithaca was filmed over two years across the UK, Europe, and the US. The documentary follows 76-year-old retired builder John Shipton's tireless campaign to save his son Julian Assange. A reminder to our listeners, which they likely don't need, but for those new, the world's most famous political prisoner, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, has become an emblem of an international arm wrestle over freedom of journalism, government corruption, unpunished war crimes, and Julian now faces a 175-year sentence if extradited to the United States. His family members are confronting the prospect of losing Julian forever to the abyss of the U.S. justice system, or as I would call it, the injustice system. Ithaca provides a timely reminder of the global issues at stake in the case, as well as an insight into the personal toll inflicted by the arduous, often lonely task of fighting for a cause bigger than oneself. Gabriel, welcome to the program. Hello, I'm Mickey. It's my pleasure and honor, and I would also like to formally introduce Mr. John Shipton, Julian's father, and of course the protagonist of this film. John, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Mickey. Pleasure to be here.
0: The pleasure is mine. You have a lot to say. Gabriel, you're the producer. Your work has been recognized and celebrated at international film festivals from Toronto, Melbourne, Hamburg, Hawaii, Sheffield, Abu Dhabi, Chelsea. Your films have been nominated for awards. You produced Ithaca, which is, again, a powerful documentary about your family's fight to free Julian Assange. This film was nominated for the Walkley Award, Australia's Premier Journalism Prize, as well as an AACTA Award nomination. Ithaca opened the Berlin Human Rights Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award. And, of course, Julian's wife, Stella Morris, is in the film. Let's get a little bit to the film. Gabriel, how did this come about? Tell us a little bit about the process of, of putting this together. It's a complicated and long story, and you've packed it into a really informative and powerful, emotional and factual documentary. Folks around the country are now going to have a chance to
2: see it. It all started back in 2019, around August. That was just a few months after Julian had been taken from his refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy, where he spent seven years. He was snatched by the UK police and taken to a maximum security prison just outside of London called Belmarsh. And it was at that time Julian was being kept in solitary confinement in a section of the prison called the Health Wing, which the prisoners call the Hell Wing. And that was a part of the prison for the most suicidal, terminally ill prisoners in a very, very harsh and maximum security prison. It's the worst place there. And that's where Julian was being kept when he first was taken to Belmarsh Prison. And it was at that time that I went to see him with John and, and and journalist John Pilger. And that was my first visit to the prison. And I left that day thinking that I might not see Julian again. That was the feeling I had when I left that day. So that feeling really propelled me to take more action into How we could make a film that would help the cause and sort of address some of the negative smear campaigns and the demonization and the dehumanization that really gave way to allow these governments and organizations and institutions to carry out this torturous persecution on Julian. I'm a film producer. produced drama film, scripted drama with actors and sets and things like that. So really traditional storytelling background. And I wanted to bring some of that into this film and really tell an emotional story and engage an audience in a new way, engage them emotionally with John's story, with Stella's story and their journey to free their son and husband and really engage the audience in a different way you know open their hearts to what's going on and then open their minds as well as addressing this demonization and dehumanization of julian and really learn about julian in a new way learn about julian through the people who love him and learn about him as a son a father he is just a human being that this is happening to and helping people understand that i think helps them see the injustice that has been perpetrated in Julian's case.
0: Gabriel, it is such a powerful film about humanity and injustice and family. So many different things woven through the story that's being told and and expertly so by yourself and by by John and Stella and uh, some of the other other folks in it. I had a, a question that a few folks have already asked me about, and that, that was the title of the film, Ithaca. I-T-H-A-K-A.
2: It gets to the feeling behind that story. It's really about the journey. It's about what we learn on this journey. The friends we make, those are the things that make us rich. And I think when you're fighting in a cause, in any cause that is bigger than you, the objective or the goals seem so far away and might not seem achievable, but you really have to keep going. And it's not necessarily about getting there, but it's about what you learn about yourself, others, and the friends you make and the experience that you have along the way. And really, I think it talks really a lot about not being afraid, which is also a very key part to the campaign to free Julian, because those fears, you bring them along inside you, I think the poem says. So it's about all that. And then it's really this allegory for any type of activism, really, for people who are fighting for a cause bigger than themselves. But when we were on the road in the US in January 2021, John and I traveled there with the promise of a potential meeting with the Biden administration there was a new administration coming in and people thought there might be a change. There could be a change of position here. And so it was at that time that we were in the U S and John would listen to that poem as a sort of way to rebalance yourself when times are tough and, and when things aren't going your way.
0: Well, things have been more than tough. And, uh, John Shipton, incredible story uh, that you tell, the movie, at times looking very difficult to tell. So many parts stand out. But John, tell us about just the process of making the film is part of that journey too.
1: I did find in traveling, I I think we've been in 50 countries now, some of them six or seven times, I did find this really interesting thing that in people's hearts generally, There is a revulsion at injustice and a deep hunger for justice and to see justice. And as a consequence of that, wherever we go, we've been warmly welcomed. You know, traveling across the states, backwards and forwards, 16 events over a couple of weeks. We were welcomed everywhere, the same in Germany and in France and wherever else we've been, it's been the same phenomenon. The circumstances of Julian awaken in people's hearts their yearning to see justice and their revulsion at injustice.
0: Indeed, John, as there were so many profound moments throughout the film and, of course, throughout this journey. And this struggle for justice. One of the things that you said early on really caught my attention. I think you were talking in the frame of sort of the way the media look at these kinds of issues, a Hollywood way of looking at life you mentioned. And you said I would prefer the difficulty of destiny over the ease of narrative.
1: Everything seems to be these days a narrative which seeks to embrace us and actually misdirects us, so for example. The latest one is the weather balloons that have invaded the United States, and they make up a narrative around the weather balloons, which is farcical and comical, really. But in order, they, they spring this narrative on us in order to misdirect us and take our eye away from some disaster that they've embarked upon, like war with Russia
0: or blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline or having three major railway disasters in communities across the United States. But over here, it's all the Super bowl and uh, Chinese spy balloons. John, that's that's the only thing the media seem to be interested in over here.
1: It's better, I think, to focus on your desired destiny and not the narrative, not the seduction of a narrative. I know that the Bible teaches us that things have a beginning and a middle and an end. And of course, the end is the ultimate destiny that you have depending upon how you've lived your life. That's a truth. However, contemporary newspapers tend to abandon their responsibility and service power and commerce in constantly directing us away from those rural things that rest in the depth of the heart, our destiny, our family, our friends, how we engage with each other and what we do from day to day to assist ourselves in reaching that destiny. And some of the destinies can be complementary and mutual. So, for example, working to improve the circumstances of one's family so that destiny is complementary to yourself and family and mutual the family group or your community move in symphony to your contribution
0: That's John Shipton, the father of Julian Assange, also protagonist of a new documentary film, Ithaca, A Father, A Family, A Fight for Justice. We are also joined by Gabriel Shipton, Julian's brother, who is the producer of the film. And after this brief musical break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about journalism and how some of the concepts that we were just talking about apply in many different ways. So please stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in the first segment of the program, we are delighted and honored to welcome Gabriel Shipton and John Shipton, brother and father respectively of Julian Assange. They are a force behind Ithaca, a father, a family, a fight for justice. This is a new documentary film that's out and it's actually going to be shown across the United States starting in late February through part of spring. So there will definitely be opportunities to see the film and meet the folks behind the film. Gabriel Shipton, before the break, John was talking about some larger-than-life issues and really building solidarity. I would like to attach that with a movement of solidarity fighting for values and principles. And in this case, we're clearly talking on one level about justice for Julian Assange as a human being. As someone that does not deserve to be imprisoned and tortured and treated the way he has, and how it has affected Stella Morris and his kids and you all as his family, and then there is another layer of the relationship to the importance I know John was talking about um, you know the vapid nature of 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 the press and the the ability they have to misdirect and in many cases, what Julian and WikiLeaks did is not necessarily directly but as a result of bringing forward information that they should be reporting on. And then to see the press both at once take some of those stories and win awards on them, but then turn around and, and literally turn on Julian and attack him is profound on a personal level for certain but it's also a profound assault on the Fourth Estate, an assault on the free press, and essentially, in the in the court of public opinion, political operatives, the CIA, the media, the establishment media, they've really accused Julian of being guilty of journalism, something that our own media system has a hard time with reporting the truth, and and that's what Julian's work was all about. Gabriel, can you talk a little bit about your film even as a form of journalism? And can you connect some of these these bigger ideas to the significance of what are you all and what are we fighting for in this case?
2: We had to really make a different film. We knew from the outset that talking about the case, talking about Julian's persecution in a sort of matter-of-fact way, that was never going to fly and that was never going to get past the gatekeepers. So from the outset we knew that and we knew that we had to make a different kind of film and we really sort of leant into that. We knew that we had to almost make a film about Julian, but not about Julian, if you know what I mean, to get past these barriers that have been put up over the years. And we encountered a lot of, in the early days making the film, this was made totally independently. We started off, we did not have a distributor. We did not have a, a broadcaster or any of the funding bodies in Australia on board or anything like that. And we didn't get any of those on board until they actually saw the film. And so they could say, oh, well, this isn't a homage to Julian Assange. And we were successful. It played on the Australian national broadcaster. And it was the first time in 10 years that there'd been a positive piece about Julian. The last piece, I think, was called The Trial of Julian Assange, but it should have been called The Trial of Julian Assange's Character. And so really to be able to navigate that and to, and to get that through is a particular skill that I think there are some journalists who have it and some who don't. If you go back and look at why Julian founded WikiLeaks, you know, he identified uh, this problem. With uh, these media corporations, uh, the gatekeeping of leaks, the centralization of leaks and information through these gatekeepers, through these corporate gatekeepers that would essentially report on what the government told them to do. And WikiLeaks really revolutionized that. They revolutionized leaking by protecting sources, giving sources an opportunity to leak to a platform where they could reliably know that. Their digital print was protected. So attracting sources in that sense, taking the information out of the control of these newspapers and putting it in the hands of the people so anybody could go and read this information. It was no longer behind these walls and kept in the files of newsrooms. So I think that revolution has continued on. Even though Julian has been silenced, we see now the explosion of independent media, independent journalists. A perfect example is the Twitter files. They wasn't given to media corporations because the source knew that they would gatekeep that information and they would not release it. And so you can see the rise now of independent journalists and with the internet, with platforms like Substack, with podcasts, we no longer need to rely on these media corporations for our information. So I think that really is Julian's and WikiLeaks's legacy is is that explosion of independent journalism.
0: And an extraordinary one and one that we certainly celebrate at Project Censored. And over the years so many of the WikiLeaks stories ended up on our pages. And it was because the corporate media, the gatekeepers They didn't want to pick these stories up, and if and when they ever did, they had to spin them and control them. And then, of course, they do what they always do, and that's shoot the messenger. They attack the messenger. And in the case of Julian Assange, that's exactly what happened. So many terrible negative smear campaigns against him, whether through Sweden or the U.S., the CIA finally getting caught, planning to assassinate, kidnap, so many horrific and and illegal things. And now he is trapped in... This extradition system uh, in the UK, which I know has been extraordinarily trying uh, with his health and uh, isolation. And uh, he's already being punished. He's already being tortured. They're getting what they want.
2: Yeah, the example's been set. That's exactly right. Like the message has been sent. If you expose this information, you have no rights. You have no right to due process, no right to asylum. We can take away your voice. I think the example has been set for everyone around the world that if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. And I think, interestingly, these corporate media organizations have finally realized if they can get Julian, then they can get us. And next thing you know, Donald Trump's got an Espionage Act investigation. And next thing, President Biden's got an Espionage Act investigation. This could actually be applied to anybody and everybody. You know, it's not just Julian Assange, it's it's sitting presidents, ex-presidents. So it's a very, very dangerous precedent. I think that's why we're seeing the corporate media coming together. Certainly
0: late to the game, but perhaps welcome voices. John Shipton, you made so many brief but profound statements about media, about journalism, and about what was at stake here. I wanted to hear some of your thoughts, too, on how significant uh, Julian's case really is for not just journalism, but behind it. How we, as people, have to check the power of our governments, the only way we can do that is if we have access to the kinds of information that Julian was making available and and by working with the whistleblowers who also were risking their lives to make that information available. John Shipton.
1: That's the best question I've had in a few months. How I see it is this, that the original insight of Julian Assange was as follows, that with the burgeoning of the internet, and I think back in 2006, there are about 60 million websites on the internet. With the burgeoning of the internet, if you put up some information, then all of those that had access to the internet could participate in the analysis of that information over dinner or with their friends having a beer or in symposiums and conferences, or at school, or at university, or at work, expand upon their understandings. And as a consequence of that, increase the general understanding of government policy and the overall intelligence of the community. Brilliant and wonderful, and it has happened. So I, I've been following Project Censored, you know, since the revelations of Chelsea Manning were published by Julian Assange, and subsequent to that, my understanding of how governments operate and and how there has been a progressive integration of legacy media into government. And so there's really no distinction whatsoever between legacy media and government policy. And the distinct thing that we understand is that the integration of those two voices, government policy and legacy media, have meant the dumbing down of their capacities. Who on earth would put up uh, a series? of revelations and having a sitting president of one of the most powerful countries in the world rabbit on about weather balloons floating over the United States. There's 75,000 weather balloons released by the United States every year. The sky is crowded with them. And they have done that to themselves because they're completely integrated with the, the legacy media and a willingness to deceive us. Now, this is important. This is the last point I make. They've come across this secret that if you say something from a point of view of authority, the New York Times, the president, spokesperson, that's completely stupid, but said from a position of authority, the People will go around saying, well, it must be right. They wouldn't say something so bloody stupid, so ridiculous, if it wasn't true. And the other quality of it is that it's inarguable. You cannot reason against that level of stupidity. All of Project Census and all of the other ferment in in, uh, what we call alternative media But it's not really alternative. It's the only actual source of information that you can rely on and speak to your friends about, and that you can reason through. You can pull it to pieces and say, aha, I understand now how government policy was formulated within a small section, small section of government to go about a criminal act of terrorism. I understand that now. And I understand from that how ineffective my Congress and my congressmen have become.
0: It's all interconnected. And in that regard, in the worst of ways, John Shipton, and what you just described, the legacy media collaboration with governments, with government agencies, intelligence, the whole national security complex. It's now the military entertainment complex. It permeates all of Hollywood, everything, this kind of messaging. Because we often hear critics say, well, these media outlets, they don't censor, they use news judgment. They're private, by the way, so they get to decide what's on your airwaves. And at Project Censored, for a long time now, we've described the phenomenon that you just eloquently laid out we call it censorship by proxy moving beyond prior restraint notions and the idea just because it doesn't look like the government is putting the blinders on everyone we know well who these people are and how they're completely networked and you don't necessarily need a memo from places like washington to the new york times about how to do something these people already know they breathe the same air of the established order They go to the same colleges. They go to the same programs. They go to the same think tanks. It's this group of people. And I don't mean to make it sound like some nefarious cabal or conspiracy. This is all happening in front of us. And Julian Assange has committed the great crime of journalism and publishing by showing people exactly how this goes on, how long it goes on, the extent and depth to which it goes on in a way that is undeniable or anyone that has any relationship with reality.
1: My last comment would be this, that the the United States has a holy grail, which we all must seek to constantly move towards. And that's the first amendment.
0: Well, it's a lot of work and we've all got to pitch in to support it. And I think one fantastic way, that we can all support it even more is by coming out and seeing you all on some of your U.S. tour to see this really brilliant documentary, Ithaca, A Father, A Family, A Fight for Justice. Gabriel Shipton, in the last couple of minutes we have here, last words from you on these matters. And I would be appreciative if you would tell folks where they might get the opportunity to actually come and see not only the film, but the both of you, Gabriel.
2: I know we criticize the U.S. government a lot. Whenever we travel to the U.S., we're always you know, welcomed with open arms and, and amazed at the hospitality of the people there and some of the friendliest audiences and supporters on our travels. We always meet them when we're in the U.S.A. So we, we criticize the government, but the people are strong and, and always happy to come to visit them again.
0: I appreciate your coming in and helping us with that with that criticism because it's it's extraordinary and much needed. See, we feel very lonely here sometimes.
2: We'll be in 25 cities across the U.S. Uh, during March and April. You can find out all the details, all the events at the film website, which is ithica.movie.com. We will be in San Francisco on March the second at the Roxy Theater at 7 p.m. and also on March the third at the Smith-Raphael Film Centre at 7pm. So if, if you're in San Francisco, you can come and see us uh, at those two venues or check the website. We will, we'll, I hope we're coming to uh, your town or city. Um, we'll, we'll have over 40 events uh, all around the US. Uh, so yeah, I hope we can get to see everyone and everyone can come down and speak to us. What what uh, Another thing I'd ask people to do is You know, always when we're travelling around, we're we're asking people to contact their representatives and let them know how they feel about this case, you know, how it affects their democratic rights. I think it's a pretty hard position. Uh, Congress is very late, particularly the Progressive Caucus. I think we're hearing some murmurs that there is some movement in the Progressive Caucus. So now is the time to give your representatives in the Progressive Caucus a phone call and to encourage them to act on this
0: some of the members of the Assange defense chapters in the U S are working to get information and copies of certain books that are coming out or have already been written to members of Congress. And I'm happy to say that I was just contacted the other day by someone in the LA branch. And we're going to try to get copies of Kevin Costola's book guilty of journalism sent to members of Congress, to key members of the media. And we're going to do everything we can to raise more awareness around this. And again, connect the dots from Julian Assange, the person, and your family, and his family, to the great sacrifices he's made, and to this, the significance and the importance of free flow of information in purportedly free societies, and in, in great support uh, of a truly free press. Gabriel Shipton, John Shipton, it has been my pleasure and an honor to host you today on the Project Censored show, Ithaca.movie. You can learn more um, February 28th in Los Angeles, March 1st, Los Angeles, March 2nd, San Francisco, Bay Area, both at the Roxy, also Smith-Raphael Film Center, March 3rd in San Rafael, California, you'll also be in Santa Fe, Houston, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., College Park, Maryland, Huntington, New York, Bronxville, New York, Toronto, Canada, uh, Dennis, Massachusetts, and many, many more places. There's a long list at the website. I wanted to at least read some more of those out to our audience because our program airs across the country. It'd be in Tacoma, Washington, Madison, Wisconsin, Syracuse, New York, Woodstock, New York. A lot of great places, a lot of great folks there. And I hope everybody comes out to see you all and to see this very important and powerful film, Ithaca. John and Gabriel, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Mickey.
0: And that was my conversation with Gabriel Shipton, and John Shipton about the film Ithaca. Up next on the Project Censored Show, we continue our conversation about Julian Assange. We will welcome back author Kevin Gostola, his latest book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the first segment of the program today, we were honored to be joined by the father and brother of Julian Assange, John and Gabe Shipton, talking about the new documentary Ithaca. And of course, this segues very well into our next guest, who's certainly no stranger to the Project Censored audience, independent journalist Kevin Gostola, the managing editor at Shadowproof, Kevin has recently authored a book with the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. It'll be out March 7th, and you can certainly be paying attention at shadowproof.com and at the Project Censored page for more information about events around both the film and Kevin's book. The book is titled Guilty of Journalism, the Political Case Against Julian Assange. It has a a stellar foreword written by another intrepid independent journalist and filmmaker, Abby Martin. Again, Kevin's no stranger to the Project Censored audience. He's been coming on the show for a long time, but especially in the last year or so, Kevin's been coming on to give a lot of updates about the Assange case. He is clearly one of the foremost experts among a handful of people on the Assange case. Daniel Ellsberg has basically called him a go-to source on the matter. And I'm just delighted to bring Kevin back onto the program today to talk more about this forthcoming book and why journalism really matters at the heart of the Assange case case. Kevin Costolo, welcome back to the program.
3: Hey, it's good to be with you again.
0: Thanks so much, Kevin. So let's start in because this is a book and you wrote it. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about all the work you've done over the past plus decade, meaning how did that gear you toward this kind of book? You've been writing a lot of journalistic pieces. now, And this is a 300-page book, so that's kind of a different animal But given that you've been writing about so many of these themes, it seems like it all really came together. And it's a very powerful book in in ways that is even different than the several books about Assange that have come out recently. So tell our listeners a little bit about your process and your thoughts about writing the book. And then let's also maybe contrast it with some of the other things that are coming out around Assange right now. Kevin Costola.
3: Yeah, so I consider this to be the culmination of over a decade of reporting that I have done. Whether it was for an earlier iteration or other formation, uh, the Fire Dog Lake, uh, it was a progressive website that was kind of a mainstay, considered a part of the net roots with a grouping of other sites like Daily Coast back in the late 2000s, 2010. I was brought on by editor-in-chief Jane Hampshire to be a columnist to cover civil liberties and national security issues. I took over for Marcy Wheeler, who left, and I revamped the column and turned it into a space that not only covered civil liberties and national security, but also I brought in grassroots protests and brought in this grassroots energy to the column. And I would go to the hearings at Fort Meade where PFC Chelsea Manning was being put through a court-martial. I did this from December 2011 all the way to August 2013, uh, when the sentencing verdict came and she received a 35-year sentence to Fort Leavenworth Military Prison. And then after that, I was introduced to whistleblowers, like CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, who endorsed my book. And I was introduced to NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake. I was able to uh, meet people who were involved in whistleblower advocacy and were knowledgeable about the way the Espionage Act was used, not only against whistleblowers, but also as a way to go after and chill the ability of journalists to have confidential sources. Later on, I would connect with the wife of Jeffrey Sterling, a black CIA whistleblower. I go on to cover cases like Daniel Hale, who is a drone whistleblower currently held in very harsh conditions. And I write about him in the book because of the fact that I think those conditions are instructive for us understanding where Julian Assange could end up if he's brought to the United States and convicted. I was introduced to Billy Winter Davis And the family of reality winner. And I write about what she went through as another example of what could be the treatment that Assange faces if he's brought to the U.S. And so I think what's different and you talk about these books and you compare them to different ones. We've got Niels Meltzer's book from Verso, which is considered the gold standard for a book on the Assange Case And it's very thorough, and it's the product of his work as the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. And he looked at each of the countries that are implicated in what Julian Assange has gone through, Sweden, Britain, Australia, and Ecuador in particular, as well as the United States, and he used international human rights law to assess the ways in which they had persecuted assange and it's a different book than what i put together because the book that i have formed is hyper focused on the allegations that are in the indictment against julian assange and it's very focused on what has happened in the united states since the publications of those disclosures that came from chelsea manning All the way up to the end of 2022, when we were getting news stories about the CIA spying on Julian Assange and being involved in an espionage operation. This private contractor, UC Global in Spain, was involved. And then another book that is out there is you've got Stefania Marizzi's book, which is Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. But where I am different from her book, we offer something different she's offering a perspective from her collaboration with WikiLeaks. She was somebody who was given access to documents and worked on the war logs, the Afghan and Iraq war logs. She worked on the U.S. diplomatic cables. She's based in Italy. She focused on the country of Italy and revelations that were relevant to her home country. And she also has pursued this really important work. She's filed freedom of information requests seeking records that relate to how Julian Assange was targeted, and she's fighting those in court. And this is work that I haven't done, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that I'm going to do that work. But her book focuses on that journey, on pursuing that important endeavor. And then Like I said, this book is very focused on giving people that guide. So in the event that there is a trial in the United States, we would have something that we could share with everyone to sound the alarm and tell people that this is what is happening to Julian Assange. Despite what you may hear in the courtroom, here's what you need to understand about Julian Assange's prosecution.
0: And I'm glad you pointed that out because it's important. If people are really interested in this case, they should be trying to read as much as they can from these different authors, these different perspectives, because, well, Kevin, as you know, and our listeners know, we've been covering Julian Assange at Project Censored and WikiLeaks and various whistleblowers for years because the corporate media don't cover these stories. Or if they do, they have a very different spin. They leave a lot of information out. They write more hit pieces. And so it's really important for people to be able to follow the facts around these key issues because this isn't just about Assange or WikiLeaks. It's also about the title of your book, Guilty of Journalism. I mean, this is what's at stake here. I heard you say a word a minute ago that triggered a thought here, sounding the alarm. You've actually had a good Publisher's Weekly review, I believe, recently that actually gave you high marks on the Assange book. However, like many of these kinds of reviews, they always have some line or some aside or some quip.
3: I think they set up my book very well. They say journalist Gastola issues a stout defense of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in the searing polemic against the U.S. government's encroachment on the freedom of the press, which I think is a very good way to frame it. After Assange published more than a quarter million diplomatic cables leaked by former U.S. Army soldier Chelsea Manning... The CIA retaliated by labeling WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service, launching offensive counterintelligence campaigns, and hiring contractors to spy on Assange. Delving into the rise of an American security state after 9-11, the Obama administration's use of the 1917 Espionage Act to disrupt the flow of information from government sources to news reporters— and the fates of Edward Snowden, reality winner, and other whistleblowers, Costola makes a convincing case that the American government has overreacted in the case of Assange. And then here's where they quibble with me. The argument is somewhat undermined, however, by the author's tendency to drift into alarmism, as when he suggests that the U.S. might eventually use the Espionage Act against private citizens who share critical views on social media. I'm not going to go into the weeds of how that surfaces in my book, but it does appear at the end of the conclusion. And I don't think they're recognizing the reality of press freedom in the United States by dismissing that so casually. What I outline is, first, I invite people to imagine a scenario. In which a person could be on social media who is already known to be very critical of the US government, and they themselves end up a target of a raid or an investigation under the Espionage Act. And what I had in my mind was the thought that, okay, there's not a lot of trust in media right now. You spend a lot of time on Project Censored, digesting polls, looking at what people think about different institutions. Someone might not really know what individual journalists they want to turn to to give a document. They also probably don't want to go through proper channels if they've read any of the news because they could get crushed by their supervisor, whether it's in their chain of command. They probably don't want to go to Congress because the congressional committees are captured and they'll probably inform intelligence leaders that someone is a source and leaking this material. So what might they do? Maybe they know a family member or they have a friend that they don't think these agencies know about, and they pass it on, and they say, could you just post this to your Facebook, or could you post this to your Twitter and share it? I think we need to get this out. And maybe that person who gets it out is somebody, like I said, who has already been posting regularly, has a record of being critical of the US government. And I do believe that if they did that, without having any background as a journalist, without having a body of work as a professional, a media professional, they would likely be rated by the FBI because the FBI would want to know where they got that document. And that's what I outlined.
0: So Kevin Costola, is that alarmist or alarming?
3: It's alarming. And I think you could call me an alarmist and I would embrace that label because we should be sounding the alarm about the fact that anybody could be guilty of journalism.
0: And Noam Chomsky said about the book, It's Essential Reading for Those Who Care About Freedom of Expression and Elementary Justice. We are speaking with journalist and author Kevin Gostola, talking about his forthcoming book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. We will continue our conversation with Kevin Gostola after this brief musical break. Stay with us. You're listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Welcome back to our conversation. We are continuing on the theme of Julian Assange today. With us in this final segment of the program is author and journalist Kevin Gastola. He has spent the last decade reporting on Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, and the wider war on whistleblowers. He is co-founder and managing editor of Shadowproof, an independent news outlet focused on systemic abuses of power in business and government, and the curator of the Dissenter Newsletter. Costola also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. His work has appeared in outlets such as The Nation, Salon, Common Dreams, and Truthout, and he has been a featured guest on Democracy Now!, The Real News Network, Counterspin, and Al Jazeera English. He is, of course, a regular guest here with us, updating us on the Assange case and all things Whistleblower. His forthcoming book, Seven Stories Press with Censored Press, is Guilty of Journalism, the Political Case Against Julian Assange. So before the break, Kevin, we were talking about how alarming the things that are happening around the Assange case and what they portend toward journalism. So in the time we have left, why don't we talk a little bit about a couple of what you might see as the standout elements of your book, If you had to pick a couple of key things that you do in the book, what do you think that you would want to call attention to?
3: I have little touches so that I could make it personal. And like you said, being such an avid music listener, I folded in some examples of many of the artists who have shown solidarity and supported Assange. And those are introducing, those helped me introduce several chapters. But what I think is, Really, the most important aspect to highlight about the book is the recognition that the Assange case doesn't begin with the indictment of Julian Assange. That, in fact, many of the different aspects that you find in the indictment are resurfaced from the court martial against Chelsea Manning. And that makes sense, right? Because we already heard the other side. We heard military prosecutors talk to us about why. They needed to punish and put in prison the source of the materials that gave us access to this wealth of knowledge about how the U.S. government functions globally and how it wages wars. And so you need to go back to that court-martial and reflect on what were some of the things that were said there. And how about some of the things in the indictment right now that are claimed? Did those claims do well during the court-martial? Were they confirmed through the work of prosecutors? Or did they fail to corroborate? And I think the two most important points to make here with the brief amount of time that we have is, you notice that Julian Assange is accused of conspiracy to crack a password. Um, He's treated as a co-conspirator with Chelsea Manning under the Espionage Act. And honestly... They never claimed that Julian Assange was working collaboratively with Chelsea Manning, or they never put that together during the court martial. In fact, I quote one of the prosecutors, Captain Joe Morrow, who said that Chelsea Manning was accountable for her own actions. I'm paraphrasing, but basically saying that she's the one on an individual level who needed to be punished for what she had done. And they didn't say that she was put up to it by Julian Assange. So he's not guilty of whatever they're accusing. I mean, even if he had though, one of the things we make clear in the book is that journalists solicit information all the time from their sources. They want to know who has access to material and who can give them stories whether it's Julian Assange of WikiLeaks or to use somebody who's topical right now in our sphere, Seymour Hersh, a longtime reporter. They're going to lean on their sources to see what can you tell me so that I can put together a story that is in the public interest.
0: Kevin, one of the other hallmarks of the book for me that stands out is the story of how the CIA was plotting to kill and kidnap Assange, the Isakov story from Yahoo. We know many things that seem to just get swept under the rug or ignored, and there's a part at the end of the book that you list and categorize a lot of the major things that we've learned from Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, and the whistleblowers that that got information to him. And some of the things on the list have just been almost accepted. The corporate media certainly likes to move on from them. Look at the things that we know because of this. And why is it that the major journalistic outlets didn't tell us these things? Why did we have to learn them from whistleblowers? And why did no one publish them except Assange?
3: That's a really good question. And I think one of the things that people need to understand here about these cables these documents that were published is that even today you still have examples of people using this information in order to better understand the current world in which we live the current world not like to assess history and do research and help people understand what happened during the era in which these documents were written but how these documents continue to have implications today and a great example are the cables related to Ukraine and Russia and NATO and we won't go into the issues but i just want to make the example that Branko Marzatic who is a journalist with Jacobin magazine he did a story for an organization that is committed to pursuing peace avoiding the cold war tensions between Russia and the United States and he went through all of these cables that came out about what was going on, what Europe thought about Ukraine. And he put it all together and he showed what the US understanding was about how far NATO could go and what would get NATO and the US into trouble. And I just use that as an example. Now, also, I'll I'll end with this. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq invasion. And it's very important to just mention that that features in my book that I discussed the Iraq war logs, and I also discussed the communications log that was uncovered when cables were posted to the internet by WikiLeaks at the end in August 2011, towards the end of their work posting cables. People went through over 100,000 cables and found, I actually was the one that found it. I found a communications log. I put it in there, and I do. I do take credit. It's a lot of credit to take. Because in the end, that log played a huge role in the US withdrawing troops from Iraq. But I mean, the fact is I found it and then Glenn Greenwald hit it on Twitter and then he shared it and then it was being hit by a bunch of different people. And before you know it, Democracy Now! was covering it. Democracy Now! had actually already covered this raid that happened where there was a family that was basically massacred. And then the United States military tried to cover it up by bombing. After people were massacred, they tried to cover it up by bombing. And a UN official investigated this. And McClatchy had a reporter who covered this in real time. And Democracy Now! interviewed that reporter. So it was already known, this incident, but then we got this cable, and it had a ripple effect, and the Iraqi government said, you know what, we are not going to grant immunity to U.S. soldiers, so you won't be able to keep residual forces here, you won't have an occupation that you can continue past this date if you want immunity. And Barack Obama blinked and decided to pull out all forces from Iraq because he couldn't get immunity for any future war crimes by U.S. troops. And that was because of WikiLeaks.
0: Extraordinary in its significance historically and in the present, as you put it. The appendix is 30 WikiLeaks files the U.S. government doesn't want you to read. And uh, you broke it up with climate change and the environment, corporate power, human rights abuses, regime change, foreign policy— and U.S. politics in general. Kevin Costola, could you tell people how to find and follow your very important work? And I know you're going to be doing a series of events and talks and tours. You're going to Europe. You're going to be doing things here in the States, and we certainly want to share those with our listeners.
3: Please go to the dissenter, D-I-S-S-E-N-T-E-R.org. It's a free newsletter where you can subscribe, and I will send updates to you about where I'm going to be and what events I'm doing.
0: And, of course, the Ithaca documentary is going to be screening around the United States from late February through March and April. Those were our previous guests, John Shipton and Gabe Shipton, uh, father and brother of Julian Assange, uh, the forces behind that important documentary. And we've just now been speaking again with independent journalist and author Kevin Gastola. His book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, Contact your favorite local independent bookstore if you're interested in getting a copy, and please try not to get it from Amazon. Kevin, thanks so much for all the important work you do. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show today. I'm Mickey Huff, executive director and founding co-host of the program with Dr. Peter Phillips, our former director. Eleanor Goldfield is our current co-host and an associate producer. Anthony Fest is our senior producer and the man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on some 50 stations around the U.S. and is available as a podcast streaming online. Thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.